0: Good morning, everyone. If you have your Bibles, please will you open with me to the book of James. We're starting in James chapter 2 today, and I'm going to read James 2 verses 1 to 7. My brothers... Have you not then made distinctions among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? Listen, my beloved brothers, has not God chosen those who are poor in the world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom which he has promised to those who love him? But you have dishonored the poor man. Are not the rich ones or the rich the ones who oppress you and the ones who drag you into court? Are they not the ones who blaspheme the honorable name by which you were called let's pray our father sometimes your word hits us and it hits us hard so as we come to your word today we ask for your grace we ask for your mercy We ask for your spirit to convict us. And we ask, Lord, that as we are laid bare before your word, that you would do wonderful things through it. Amen. Amen. I heard a speech a few years ago given at the University of the Free State by a former SRC president who said this, we were not made, or we were made, not to love and embrace our cultures and traditions by colonialists. The imposition of Christianity is a cruelty directed at Black Africans, an effort to mentally enslave and permanently colonize Africa. If they were cruel enough to take on Africans with brutal force and install themselves as perpetual rulers in a foreign land. The introduction of Christianity in South Africa only explains how it was used as a tool to strip us of our identity and dominate us. As a man would insert an insect at the end of a fishing hook to attract and catch fish, Christianity was and is bait used to mentally enslave and colonize Africans. It carries pious promises of a new and eternal life. Those who refuse to be subject to it are dead in its eyes, a threat enough to make a man depart from his own cultural values. We feared the unknown and sold our souls to the missionaries at the expense of our cultures, traditions, and the legacy of Africa. It's not an uncommon ideology being taught or presented in our universities and in different segments of our society today that Christianity is nothing more than a tool of colonialism used to subjugate and to control people. And the tragedy of its growing popularity is that it couldn't be further from the truth that is at the heart of the true gospel, the heart of missions, is this, the desire that Christ, who is the only glorious Lord, would receive the praise of the nations. He is beautiful and splendid and wonderful. He is majestic and holy. He is worthy of all honor and glory. He is worthy of the multifaceted worship of the world. The heart of missions is this, that the world would know the king. Let the nations be glad, as the psalmists cry. And yet, Behind the words spoken by that SRC president is a very real hurt that exists because great sectors of the church in our country have at times completely ignored the truth of the passage that we are coming to today. What does James's passage on partiality have to do with racial hurt in our country? James is speaking about rich and poor, isn't he? Well, James has a concern for the church in his context But the application of this passage is broad. The word James uses for partiality or for favoritism allows for a broad application. The word means literally to receive the face, to receive the face. It seems to have been invented by New Testament authors as a literal rendering of the Hebrew word in the Old Testament for partiality. To receive the face means to make judgments about people based on something external an external factor. In Romans 2.11, Paul says that God shows no partiality. In the context there is racial tension in the church. Now James's application here of discrimination along socioeconomic lines, it certainly is still very relevant to us today in the church in South Africa, but I mention this example so that you understand it's good going into this passage that it can equally apply to discrimination due to racism or other reasons, other, other ways of looking at appearance and judging people. In our country, we have not always done well. We still don't always do well. In context, James is speaking about obedience to the word of God and about a religion that is pure and undefiled before the Father, heartfelt, sincere, not phony or false, He said that pure religion is this, it's to visit orphans and widows in their affliction. So we saw last week how our Father is a God who lifts up the needy. And pure religion is when our Father's heart more and more becomes our heart. So James is expanding on his concern there. He's expanding here in his words as they start this passage, cut across our history and even our present with striking force. My brothers, verse one, show no partiality as you hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. There can be no place for partiality or for favoritism in true faith, not if you truly know this Christ favoritism and faith are diametrically opposed. And so we have another opportunity as we come to the letter of James. Again, he holds holds this up as a mirror to our hearts. And as a pastor, I would plead with you to open your heart. You might come to this passage, and the temptation would be to think, I don't think this is speaking to me. I'm not a prejudiced person. Well, today, have the freedom in Christ's unwavering love for you to do the difficult and uncomfortable work of being laid bare before the word of God. Favoritism is a denial of the true faith. It's a form of rejection of God's very character. We're gonna see this under three headings. Number one, favoritism is a failure to see the way God sees. It's a failure to see the way God sees. I read this week of a, Apparently, I tried to, to dig into this and to see the original context of this research and couldn't find much. But apparently, a group researched the way that clothing can affect people's perception of you. So they put a man on, the, on a street in the business di- district of New York City asking for money. And he, every day for a week, had the same line I've lost my wallet and need money for a taxi to the airport. This is my name, my address, my phone number. If you loan me the money, I'll repay you as soon as I get home. The same man wearing the same suit on the same street with that same line day in and day out on consecutive days of the week with one difference. On some days he wore a black overcoat and on other days he wore a beige overcoat. The the test was this. Beige was the color in fashion for that season. Guess when he made more money? nearly double on the days where he wore the beige overcoat. I was talking with Sheree about this and she saw something similar on TV with a a young girl asking for help on the streets, the same woman in the same location, the same lines. One day she would wear a white dress and the next a, a red dress and she received far more help from men on the days that she wore the red dress. It's simple favoritism, subtle when we don't even realize it. And it seems to come so naturally to us. We were created in the image of God. And every person has inherent worth based on that fact. And yet it's a part of our fallen state, as James puts it here, to make distinctions among ourselves. His example reveals that it's possible even in the church. In verses 2 and 3, he gives an illustration. Two men walk into your church one of them is rich, and he's wearing a gold ring and fine clothes. A gold ring was a symbol of status in that culture at the time. Our equivalent would be he drives into the parking lot in a fancy car, gets out of his fancy car, and he's wearing designer clothes. Maybe do people still wear Rolex watches? Maybe he's got a Rolex watch on. Another man comes in. He's poor and shabbily dressed. The Church people, you rush over to the rich man. You usher him in to the the best seat, say to him, sit sit here, this is where you'll hear the songs the best and listen to the preaching the best. To the poor man, you say, go stand in the corner. You've gotta sit, come sit on the floor over here. You read that and you think, how could that ever actually happen in the church? Well, James seems to think it was a problem in the first century. And in every age, the church is guilty of this in some shape or form. It's not that long ago in England that, uh, for example, where the good seats in some churches were sold, like box seats to the wealthy parishioners, while the poor were confined to the wings of the church. I read a story of uh, William Booth this week, the founder of the Salvation Army, who got in hot water for rebelling against this practice. Richard Collier, in his history of the Salvation Army, the general next to God, describes Booth's experience. Listen to this. Those who made part of Broad Street Congregation never forgot that electric Sunday in 1846, the gas jets dancing on whitewashed wall, the minister, the Reverend Samuel Dunn, seated comfortably on his red plush throne, a concord of voices swelling into the evening's fourth hymn, foul I to the fountain fly, wash me, Savior, or I die. The chapel's outer door suddenly shattered open. Engulfing a white scarf of fog, in its wake came a shuffling, shabby contingent of men and women, wilting nervously under the stony stairs of mill managers, shopkeepers, and their well-dressed wives. In their rear, a fire with zeal marched Wilful Will Booth, cannily blocking the efforts of the more reluctant to turn back. To his dismay, the Reverend Dunn saw that young Booth was actually ushering his charges, none of whose clothes would have raised five shillings in his own pawn shop into the very best seats, pew-holders' seats, facing the pulpit, whose occupants piled the collection plate with glinting silver. This was unprecedented for the poor, if they came to chapel, entered by another door to be segregated on benches without backs or cushions behind a partition which screened off the pulpit Here, though the service was audible, they could not see, nor could they be seen. Needless to say, that action didn't go down well for William Booth. Now again, you hear that and say, we would never do that, right? But James's illustration is timeless because it speaks to a sinful proclivity in our hearts. We may never ask the poor to sit on the floor, but that doesn't mean that we don't still find ways to show favoritism even in the life of the church, Do we give greater voice to those with financial clout, those whose unhappiness might affect the financial bottom line? Does money speak in the choosing of leaders in the church? Do we engage in clickiness? I come to church and I only have time for myself, for those like me, those I like who talk like I do and think like I do and look like I do. Do you have time for those whose personalities I enjoy or cultural preferences I share? Do we avoid visitors like a plague and tend only towards our friends? What about racism? Is there lingering suspicion in our hearts along racial lines? There are many ways to judge by appearances and each of us needs to search our own heart Scripture calls us to see people differently, to see them the way that God does. In the world, external appearance grants favor. Status is currency, but God's love is not so bought. Listen to this description of who God is in a passage in the Old Testament that sounds a lot like James's passage here. Deuteronomy ten seventeen to 20, for the Lord your God is God of gods and Lord of lords, the great, the mighty, and the awesome God who is not partial and takes no bribe. He executes justice for the fatherless and the widow and loves the sojourner, giving him food and clothing. Love the sojourner, therefore, for you are sojourners in the land of Egypt. You shall fear the Lord your God. You shall serve him and hold fast to him, and by his name you shall swear. We've got to avoid the world's trap, its scales of evaluating human worth And see how God sees. 1 Samuel 16, 7. Man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. So James in verse 4 here is calling for a realization of where our, our hearts might have missed the mark. He says, Have you not then made distinctions among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? Have you not... Set yourselves at odds with the very character of God, James might as well have said. Judges with evil thoughts, no better than the judge who would take a bribe. James is not pulling punches in this passage, is he? Your thoughts are evil, he says. It's wickedness. It's wickedness to look at somebody and to evaluate their worth on something external on something in their appearance. It's, it's evil to look at somebody and, and to see some people as more suited to the body of Christ or more suited to the kingdom of God or more suited to your, your efforts and your attentions. Now, what, what was the motivation in James's context here? Perhaps it was just this. If we can honor and impress the rich man and gain him to our ranks, oh, what a coup that would be. How great that would be for the church. But the poor man, what value does he bring? What does he add? It's evil, James says. And it's not in line with how God sees people. It's diametrically opposed to faith in Jesus. He says, our glorious Lord. Jesus saw everyone as they really are. He noted the heart, not the attire. In Luke 21, Jesus is with his disciples in the temple. And in the context there, they're looking, the disciples, at the the great opulence of the temple, seeing its beauty, the beauty of the stones. The Pharisees are there as well and all the flash of their outward religion. And people are bringing their gifts into the temple, into the offering box, and there come the rich. They come with their large offerings that all can admire, And the priests beam and gush. But there's something else that captures Jesus' attention. A widow with two small copper coins. Unnoticeable next to the rich. But Jesus notices. He knows. She has given all that she has. Not in order to impress. Who could she impress? Because she loves God. God. What Jesus saw was precious in his sight. He looked on the heart. HBC, how are we doing here? How is your heart under this light? Let's continue. Number two, favoritism is a failure to understand the way God works. It's a failure to understand the way God works. Were you and if you ever subject to that experience in school where there would be the, the choosing of teams for a sport, and there would be two captains chosen, and they would choose the teams, and those teams would go off and play the sport, you could find yourself in that situation in one of several different categories. Maybe you were the captain, you had the joy of lording it over all, keeping them all on tenterhooks. Maybe you were the, the first one picked, you got to do that walk of pride as your value was proclaimed to all. Maybe you were the middle of the pack, not the MVP, but comfortable and happy in your obscurity. Or maybe you were at the back of the pack, silently praying, please not last, please not last. This is how the world works deference given to the powerful, get out of jail free card given to the celebrity, love reserved for the specially skilled, for the impressive. It's not how God works. Jesus said, Luke 20, verse six, blessed are you who are poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. And here in James, uh, in, in verses five and six, as James is driving home his point now in the first of three rhetorical questions, he says, listen, my brothers, my beloved brothers, has not God chosen those who are poor in the world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom, which he has promised to those who love him? But you have dishonored the poor man, This is something, uh, it's similar to what what Paul said in that great passage of the call of God in 1 Corinthians 1. He says, "'For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong.'" God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of of God. James and Paul are saying, look up and look around you. Look at the churches around you, and what do you see? You see what God has done for the needy and the marginalized in the eyes of the world. It's the poor who fill the churches, James is saying, And that has been the case throughout the history of the church. We've seen how God is father to the fatherless, how he lifts up the needy. When Israel was enslaved in Egypt, it says God responded to their affliction. Their cry reached him. Exodus 3 verse 7 to 8, I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt and have heard their cry because of their taskmasters. I know their sufferings and I've come down to deliver them out of the hand of the Egyptians. Jesus came, and he flipped the world system on its head. In Luke 4, he's preaching in the synagogue, and he's quoting from Isaiah, talking about his own ministry, and he speaks about the beneficiaries of that ministry. He says, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Mary, in a song of praise for salvation, in Luke 1, to 53, saying this, He has scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. He has brought down the mighty from their thrones and has exalted those of humble estate. He has filled the hungry with good things and the rich he has sent away empty. So James is saying here, those who you dishonor, those lowly in the eyes of the world, God has chosen to make rich in faith and to see as rich in faith. James is pointing to how the gospel works, how God moves to lift up the needy. Now, we mustn't understand, uh, misunderstand James here. He's not saying that God is unconditionally on the side of the poor. He's also not saying that God only chooses to save the poor. James will, in this very letter, speak about Abraham and Job favorably, who were Old Testament saints and very wealthy men. And there are wealthy believers scattered throughout the New Testament. Joseph of Arimathea Who took Jesus' body and laid it in his own tomb? Cornelius in Acts 10, Lydia, Acts 16, Sergius Paulus, Acts 13. Philemon had a whole letter written to him. James is not saying here that poverty is a prerequisite for salvation. And here he speaks of the kingdom for all who love him. But Scripture reveals a truth that in general the poor are at a spiritual advantage. You see it in the story of the rich young ruler who comes to Jesus and who can't follow Jesus. The pull of his possessions on his heart was too strong. Jesus says it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of the needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom. And we come to God with, without anything to offer. Nothing to make him choose us nothing to make him see us as impressive. In his economy, all that you need is need. Or as Jonathan Edwards put it, the only thing you contribute to your salvation is the sin that made it necessary. All you have is need. And need very often is the one thing the rich don't seem to have. To get the gospel, to understand salvation, you must understand that God's election is apart from anything that would be impressive in us, anything good that we would recommend ourselves, it's all in accordance just with his good and gracious character. And so I want to read something Dan Doriani says. I think he captures the point James is trying to make so well in his commentary. The poor, he says, are forever told to sit on the floor and stand in the corner. But if there is one community in this world where all should get equal treatment, it is the church. As the saying goes, the ground is level at the foot of the cross, and everyone who is seated with Christ has a prime seat. Rich and poor, young and old, male and female, all come as sinners in need of Christ and His grace, whoever we are by the world's standards. We are orphaned by sin and adopted into God's family by grace. In God's sight, we are one. Therefore, the church should treat everyone the same way. Then he says this, When we play favorites, we deny the gospel. When there is favoritism in the church, we are working against the gospel of Christ. As people of the cross, we're called to see people through a gospel lens, to see them in the light of eternity. We are unloving to the rich. We are unloving to the rich and the impressive when we treat them the same way that the world treats them. If we place the same weight on worldly standards, or if we elevate wealth as the token of their significance and their worth. Love to the rich is this, it says, we are all equal here, come and own your need among us. Come sing with us, nothing in my hand I bring, simply to the cross I cling. Come sing with us, How can it be that you, my king, should die for me? And we are unloving to the poor and the marginalized, and we work against the gospel if they come here and receive the same treatment they receive in the world. There are people who are nervous, terrified even, to step foot in a church, because they don't know how they will be received. How do we treat those who are different? who look differently to us, who perhaps have made wrong choices in their lives and know it, or who have undesired struggles and they need help, need a loving community. HBC, are we that community? From time to time we hear reports, people who have come in and said, You know what? My experience was actually kind of cold. Nobody came and welcomed me. We've got to do better. We have to do better. Before our father, we had nothing but need to offer. It's how we see ourselves. It should be our daily marvel. I'm a child of God. Me? Why would he choose me? And it's through this framework that we see and we invite others, come and marvel with us together. Favoritism is a failure to see the way God sees. It's a failure to understand the way God works. And finally, very briefly, favoritism is a failure to trust the way God provides. To his first rhetorical question, James adds two more in verses 6 and 7. Are not the rich the ones who oppress you? And the ones who drag you into court? Are they not the ones who blaspheme the honorable name by which you were called? It seems in James' day, as it has always been in the world, that the scales of justice were balanced in favor of the rich. Money has weight in the courts of men. And not only were the church being oppressed themselves in this system, but these same rich, James says, are befouling the name of Christ as they proudly trample the poor. Now James isn't saying this to engender resentment towards the rich, but to point out in an irony that existed in that community of Christians, pinning their hopes not on a God who chooses the poor to be rich in his sight, pinning their hopes not in the honorable name of Christ who would never and could never let them down, but in the rich. We can apply this in a couple of ways, and both ways show that favoritism is a form of distrust in God. In the first sense, there's sometimes the mentality that exists even in the church. It pays to have friends in high places. This seems to have been their thinking. What can we gain from the rich, from the inclusion of the wealthy? As he had said, it's evil to favor people coming into your midst through this lens What can their status do to benefit this church? I'm not saying that, spiritually speaking, we aren't to gain from one another, from the gifts that we bring through the Spirit. I'm not saying that generosity in the church is not a good thing. It is beautiful when people are generous because they love God. But partiality that lines up with worldly standards of status and success disregards the truth that it is God who builds the church that it is God who owns the cattle on a thousand hills, and this can be a great danger for the church. You see it sometimes when the the fear of loss of income shuts the mouths of church leaders so that they do not confront affluent members. Favoritism as well is a form of distrust because it's a rejection of God's provision of significance and worth. It, It follows the worldly system of propping up ourselves by external things. We sing a song here. My worth is not in what I own, not in the skill of flesh and bone, but in the costly wounds of love at the cross. My worth is not in the color of my skin, My worth is not in the bottom line of my paycheck, it's not in the title in front of my name, it's not in my beauty or my intelligence. That's the world system, that's how the world clamors for significance. This need to distinguish myself from other people, if I can be a little bit better, that's where my worth is. The need to distinguish the group of people I belong to from those who I don't belong to. The former U.S. state governor, George Aiken said this once, if we were to wake up some morning and find that everyone was the same race, creed, and color, we would find some other causes for prejudice by noon. It is God who gives us our significance and worth. It is Christ's love that provides our identity, and God wants, to trust, wants us to trust Him. Let the gospel of His unconditional love determine how we see ourselves and how we treat one another. In closing, I just want to highlight again verse one, this description of Jesus. When I read it, I thought it's a little bit unusual. Why is James using this description? He says, show no partiality as you hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. Then he says, the Lord of glory. Why would James say that? I don't think he's making a mistake here. If you have a problem with prejudice or partiality. It is a problem of glory. They were reserving the best seat for the rich and the powerful. And we'll always have trouble in the church when we forget that the most important seat belongs to one person. It belongs to the Lord of glory. He's the one to whom the throne of eternal glory belongs, who left that throne. The word says, who though he was rich yet for your sake became poor. He's the one who invites you today to come and to own your need. He says in Revelation three seventeen to 18, You say, I am rich, I have prospered, and I need nothing, not realizing that you are wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. I counsel you to buy from me gold refined by fire, that you may be rich and white garments so that you may clothe yourself, and the shame of your nakedness may not be seen and solved to oint your to anoint your eyes so that you may see. He says in Revelation 22, 17, and let the one who is thirsty come. Let the one who desires take water the water of life without price. He is the lamp of heaven. He is the glory we long for and yearn to see. He is the one worthy of the praise of nations. Glory does not belong to us. It does not belong to those like us. It belongs to Him. And when you get that, When you're okay with that and stop placing weight, the Hebrew word for glory means weight. When you stop placing weight on yourself and see Christ as weighty and valuable and important and significant and majestic, when your faith and hope are in the King, the Lord of glory, that's what breaks the power of prejudice in your heart. Let's pray. Our Father, as we are vulnerable before you this morning, we just ask that your Spirit would drive home James's point to our hearts. Help us to see the ways in which we show favoritism. Help us to see the, which, the ways in which we degrade people in our world and how we look at them. Convict us, Lord. Jesus, be our glory be our significance, be our value. What you've done for us at the cross, choosing to give your life for the rebel, for the prideful, for the boastful, choosing to love us when we were not lovely or lovable. Oh Lord, choosing to love us with an eternal love that cannot change or be taken away or removed. That is our significance. We thank you, Jesus. Lord, I pray that you help us. Help us to become more the welcoming community that you desire us to be. Help us to love for the sake of your glory and for the gospel. Amen. Thank you very much for for being here today. And I would encourage you not to just uh, run off, um, stick around for some some fellowship. Um, If you are a visitor with us as well, stick around and and enjoy some time with us. 2 Peter 1, verse 2 and 3. Now may grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of Him who called us to His own glory and excellence. Amen.